come on the way to worship. This is kind of like, you know, if somebody's asked you to sing, you know, just a really sad song on the way to something happy, and you go, why, why are you bringing us down? Come on, don't bring us down. Uh, but so, so I, I want to turn to just a preeminent theologian on this text, and uh, his name is Tim McGraw. <laughs> and uh, Tim McGraw said this, he said, um, and he was remembering something similar that was just a very uh, seminal moment in his life, and he said this, he said, I had a barbecue stain on my white t-shirt, and she was killing me in that. Y'all are heathens, and you know where you're going. <laughs> Skipping rocks on the river by the railroad tracks. You had a suntan line and red lipstick. I worked so hard for that first kiss, and a heart don't forget something like that. Well, you know what? I was thinking about the depths of spiritual wisdom in that song. And what he's trying to do is similar to this, is that he's remembering that he has something that is super precious, and it's a girl, and he's got the girl, and she's super precious, but he's going, you know what? It was hard. I worked hard. I worked hard. It was, pain, it was even painful at the time, and a heart does not forget something like that. A heart doesn't forget something like that. And I want to share with you that there is a part of wisdom that is cherishing what you already have. Isn't that true wisdom? To learn to cherish what you already have so that it doesn't need to be taken away from you again and again to go, oh man, gosh, I really had it so good. I, I really had it so good. If I could only have it back, I remember how great it was when I had it. True wisdom comes from when we actually cherish what we already have. And then there's also something about there's a sweetness about knowing what it's like not to have and then going, man, I've got it so good now. I've got it so good now. So when we talk about the Lord, we talk about the Lord, the Lord is the greatest relationship that any person will ever have. And so part of us, we never, if you're like me, you, you may not know the time that you were not a believer. I, I was in church in utero. Um, that's a term, by the way. I was in church in utero. Um, but, you know, I just kind of popped out right there and started singing in the First, first week of the, my, my life, but um, I don't remember, but I do remember what it was like to have sin hanging over me and to have not rightness between the Lord and myself, but how good it was when I confessed that sin and especially came in to worship the Lord. So true wisdom is to not waste your suffering. True wisdom is to not waste your suffering, but to turn it into a remembrance that produces thanksgiving later on. And so as we look at this text, we're going we're to go through and we're going to pop through each one of these eight verses. And I want you to realize that before we even do this, the psalmist is giving you, we don't necessarily relate to all the way to the visual that comes from Scripture, but the psalmist has given us several visuals. He's going to start in the visual of the sea. He's going to move to the visual of the courtroom. He's going to move to the visual of a watchman on the wall of a tall, walled city. And he's going to move then also finally to the slave market. And so each one of these, they would, a Hebrew person would recognize the language that's being used, but for us, we need to understand it, and we need to really pull it out. So verse 1. Verse 1 starts out, and again, you're like, this is supposed to be a good news. We're, we're going up to worship. We're going, we're going up the psalm of ascent to worship. And you go, I cried out to the Lord in my despair. And really, the, the greatest despair is caused by suffering whose root is sin. The greatest despair 
that, that, that waiting one has is the root of suffering caused by sin. Despair, we can despair over a bad financial decision. We can despair over a health condition. We can despair over some, a loss of someone. But the greatest despair that anyone can ever suffer is the despair that is caused from sin and suffering due to sin. And so the visual that they're giving you right here is the whole idea of not being able to touch the bottom in the ocean. So if you've been to the beach, you know you walk out and you're good to go, and even the waves are hitting you, but as long as you can keep your feet down. But the visual, this is in, in the depths of my despair, what he's saying in the visual is where my feet can't touch, where I, where I don't know where the depth is and the waves are crashing over to me, that is the moment that I'm remembering. And it's from the sin that I have, and I'm remembering that moment, and at that moment I called out to the Lord. And so verse 2 Remember, this is a psalm of ascent, and where are they ascending to? To Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? The temple. And especially if this, since this is a post-exilic psalm, they're remembering back to what Solomon said in 2 Chronicles at the dedication of the temple. And at the dedication of the temple, Solomon prayed in 2 Chronicles 6.40. He said, Lord, anyone who prays a prayer in this place, will you turn and be attentive to that prayer? Lord, anyone who prays in this place, will you Point your countenance and point your face and point your ear and be attentive to that prayer. And so what he's saying is, listen, I'm praying. Hear my prayer, God. Please be merciful to me. Give me mercy. And so in verse 3, we're actually going to change now. We go, from, we go from the sea now to the courtroom. And so we get this courtroom language. And verse 3 introduces us to this whole idea, a record of our sins. In the 2019 language, that would be your rap sheet. Your rap sheet. I don't know if you've ever gone to who'sinjail.com. Some of y'all are like, this is what you do in your spare time? I'm like, yeah, I want to know who's in jail. <laughs> Look, one of these days, one of y'all is going to be in jail, and I'm going to scroll through that thing, and I'm going to see your name and be like, I'm going to go visit them. Sometimes you just see someone and it's just like, you know, John Smith, and there's like, you know, jaywalking and whatever. And then sometimes you see, you know, Sally Smith, and it's like... <laughs> and then you just got to scroll the next page. So what this text is saying is that, Lord, if we stood before you, our rap sheets would have no end. Our rap sheets would have no end. We would not be able to stand before you. And the language that's being used is in not having a representative in for you, but standing to represent yourself in front of the judge. No representation, no one to stand in your place, no one to advocate for you, but to stand before you. So there's no way, he's saying, there's no way we could stand before you. So in verse 4, verse 4, again, remember we're talking about reflecting on the building of the temple, what it was like, what it was like not to have the temple, now what it's like to have the temple. And we remember the words from verse 4 as what also was said by Nehemiah in Nehemiah 9.17. In Nehemiah 9.17, the psalmist is remembering those words, and he says, now listen, I remember what Nehemiah said, and Nehemiah said, for Lord, they rebelled against you and went away from you, but God, you were slow to anger and rich in abounding love, and in your mercy you forgave them. It's such an easy verse to know and remember because it's our life story. It's our life story. He says, I, I see this, I understand. And so in this, in this fourth verse, the psalmist is saying, well, listen, forgiveness has a cost. Even if you just say, I forgive you, the cost is you get no recompense. I, I, by forgiving someone is laying down my right to take out vengeance or revenge on them. And so he's saying, listen, for you to forgive me, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost, and it's going to cost you. Of course, this is where we understand the gospel coming in, that our, God, God doesn't say, hey, I forgive you. He says, hey, I'm going to send my son to take your place, and the justification that you're going to get is going to be visited on him. 
And so we, when the psalmist is saying, listen, I, I take seriously the forgiveness that was given me because I take seriously the cost and the weight of my own sin. So verse 5, now we're going to shift from courtroom to the wall of a walled city. And if it helps you think of, you know, Gondor, that's great. Um, just everything, Lord of the Rings, I am the pastor in the Babylon Bee that like everything comes back to the Lord of the Rings. But he says, listen, now I long for you I'm counting on you. I'm counting on you, all my hope I've put in you. And this whole idea of counting on literally is to take all of something and push it over to someone else. I am taking and with my life putting, placing, not just this hope or not just this randomness, but I'm placing my hope. So it's similar to having a chair on the stage. You've heard this analogy before. I can trust that the chair will hold me up. When I truly hope in it, though, I will do what? Sit in it. So he's saying, I'm pushing it all over to you, Lord. All of it, I'm counting on you. I'm all in with you. And then verse 6, we begin to hold this whole idea of the century of what's going on. He says, I long for the Lord. I long for the Lord. I have my hope in him. And he says, what is, what's going on in the dark where a century would be? The dark is the place where there is despair. The dark is there the place where we don't know what's coming next. The dark is the place that best illustrates the lack of control that people have in their lives. Now, when you go back to your home... And it's dark because daylight savings time, and it gets dark at 2.30 in the afternoon now. Anyway, but it gets dark, and you walk in the door, and you clap your hands, and the clapper turns on all your lights. Or if you're those Alexa people, you go, Alexa, turn on the lights. Or if you really want to burn 8,000 calories, you walk over to the light and flip the switch because it's so hard to do. These, these technological advances we thought of like 50 years ago, we were all going to be flying in cars but instead we've got things that turn our lights on for us. That's what you got kids for. Anyway, but have you ever walked outside at night and said, Alexa, lights? You have no control over that. And so the dark represents the despair and the human condition. We have no control and what we have no control over. And notice it says, but I hope and I long for the Lord. I hope and I long for them. That's not a hope and a longing that is pointless, it's not a hope. It's pointless if you just say, I'm just waiting. But we know that dawn is going to come. And so he says, I'm hoping and I'm waiting for you, Lord, with anticipation. It's inevitable. You're going to come through for me. The verse 7, now we're going to transition from the city wall of the century looking out to the slave market. The slave market. And think to ourselves, the reason why people would have been enslaved would have been they had had a debt that they could not pay. And so they didn't have, you know, First Union and Wachovia. Wachovia, I'm dating myself. Um, Nations Bank and Wells Fargo and all those places. They, didn't, they couldn't go take out a loan. They had to say, hey, listen, I can't pay. You're going to have to take it out of me. And so the language that's getting ready to happen here is he says, listen, I have hope in verse 7. I have hope in the ability of God. And here's the verb. Unfailing love for his redemption overflows. The verbiage in there literally means to pay the price so that one may be set free. To pay the price so that one may be set free. And then in verse 8, he says again, just like it said in Ezekiel, and Ezekiel said this before, God's not going to send an emissary to free you. God's not going to delegate your freedom through salvation to somebody else. God himself, God with his own hands, is going to come and save you. And we, on this side of the gospel, can see and we can say, and amen. We stand here in the place where God himself came, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us and took his our sin upon his own shoulders. So we're just going to have two two points this morning because we want we want to we want to delve into this, but we also want to have time to have the Lord's Supper too. 
The first thing is this. There is a very, very, very practical application for talking about and remembering the depths of your sin and the goodness of God's salvation and his saving grace on the way to worship. As a practical practical application for confessing your sin before coming to worship, and that is sin is the barrier to intimacy in worship. And I know that you're like, duh, sin's the barrier to worship. Now, I'm going to say this. Sin is not only the barrier to true worship, sin is the barrier to intimacy in worship. You know this in your relationships as well. In your relationship, in the old marriage vows, they would, they would say, and with my body I thee worship. And you know what that's talking about. It's not talking about playing Parcheesi with your wife. Other things. It's Tim McGraw, back to the beginning. Tim McGraw. But if you have sin between you and your spouse, there can be no intimacy. There's this thing that's there. And you have to, you have to what? You have to work. You have to work it out. You have to talk it out. Well, sin when we come into worship, is a barrier to intimacy and to where we can worship, but it's singing about God. And so Jesus Culture had a song about this a few years ago. He said, I don't don't want to sing about you like you're not in the room. But that's what worship without intimacy is like. It's about singing to God as if he's not in the room. So verses 1 through 4 are part of the greatest gift that this psalmist had. The greatest gift that the psalmist would have had was that they could not just come and walk straight into church like we can. Verses 1 through 4 are talking about remembering their sin. Now, when we talk about remembering our sin, we don't have a very good memory of our sin. We have a great memory of other people's sin against us. Like We could list that out and describe what the person was wearing, what words they exactly said to us. And when someone says, well, what did you do? You're like, was I really there? I'm not really sure I was. I think that was my twin. But... The the Hebrew would not have had this ability to just come walk up into church and start singing the way we do. If we the things that we hate when we're studying the Old Testament, we as new we as you know new New Testament Christians, we don't like looking through Deuteronomy. We don't like looking through Leviticus. We don't like looking through Exodus, other than the wonderful story part of it, because it's all of these laws that ensure that the Hebrew person cannot just walk off the street and just start worshiping God. They've got to go through all of these parameters so that they can be honest with themselves about how sinful they are and about how holy God is. And that's the blessing of the law. It's the blessing of the law. If you think the law is just terrible and there's no point to it and that's why Jesus came, Jesus came to fulfill the law. He took all the curses upon himself. However, the spirit of the law is still there. We walk with sin, and we can't just come up and just rush right up into me. Hey, God, you don't even know what I did this week. You do know what I did this week, but I know you don't care. Here I am to sing to you. And then we come into worship, and we wonder why there's no intimacy in worship. These are just a few just simple little mathematical equations. Awareness of sin allows for the pursuit of forgiveness. If you're aware of your sin, you'll pursue forgiveness. Fairly simple. Awareness of sin stirs in us a deep appreciation of grace and forgiveness. If, if we think that there's no need for us to be forgiven when we're given grace, we're like, yeah, that's, that's right. I deserve that. I'm good. And genuine worship, genuine worship, intimate worship flows from a true response to God's goodness. And it's not just God's goodness that we're reflecting on. It's also God's goodness in reflecting how much of a pain in the rear we are to deal with. And so there's not just the goodness of God, it's that 
it, it, that's why I was thinking about David and what David said. He said, you see how I really am. God not only longs to forgive us and have intimacy with us, he knows what we're really like, and he still wants it. He still wants it. And so the confession of sin, the acknowledgement of sin in this text then leads to a longing for the Lord. Verses 1 through 4 is this confession of sin, this acknowledgement of sin, this, this depth of sin, this I'm, I'm owning it, I am sinful. And look what comes out of that in verses 5 through 6. I'm counting on the Lord. I'm counting on him. I put my hope in him. I long for him. Now, a lot of us would go, yeah, I used to long for the Lord. I used to long for the Lord back when I was first saved. I remember like, you know, being stationed somewhere in the military and we couldn't worship. And then when I got to go to church, it was great. I long for the Lord. You know what? When we long for the Lord, we have intimacy with worship for him. But when we get comfortable with him, we don't. Now, I want to ask you a couple questions. And these are some of the problems that lead to intimacy problems in worship or the lack of intimacy that you have in worship. And here's the first problem that I would ask, is this you, is this me? The first problem is this. We've gotten used to no intimacy in worship. We've gotten used to not having intimacy in worship. We're used to showing up, someone else does the prayer, we, we got professionals to do the worship for us, right? You can kind of stand and observe it. I know the song is good enough. They're fairly easy to understand. I can sing them. I know that this is the part where we stand up. This is the part where we sit down. This is the part where somebody else prays. This, I just listen. This is the part where I check my phone, whatever. And then this guy talks for a little while. He's mildly stupid, but we come back every week. And then, you know, then we go home. And we're used to no intimacy in worship. And you know what? As a marriage counselor, sometimes the hardest part is when a couple comes before you and there's nothing there. Now, I love counseling newlyweds. Newlyweds are said they can't keep their hands, they're like, they, I might, I like strategically push the chairs like four feet away from each other, and they're like doing this, holding hands like over the table, and then they look at each other, and they're like, and they're texting each other, they're like three feet from each other. Then there's sometimes where you got people, and they, they are irate with one another, and they're, they're across from each other, and they're looking at each other, and they're just like this, and I'm worried that the, the rays are going to pierce this person and melt their brain. And one will say something, and they'll say, well, you know, and then I'm standing up, and then I'm between them with the Bible. That's never happened, but I, I hope it one day it will. But the worst is when a couple is there, and they're like, eh. What are you upset about? Oh, I'm not really upset about anything. What are you upset about? I'm not really upset about anything. What do you love most about them? You, the passion is wonderful, because even if it's anger passion, you can hopefully redirect that, and there's something to work with, but when there's nothing there, you're in trouble. And so many of us, we've gotten used to having a loveless marriage with the Lord, especially when it comes to worship. Hey, God, I'm going to do my job by coming to sing to you. You do your job in answering my prayer and not let anything bad happen to my job, my wife, or my kids, okay? We got a deal? And we've gotten used to there being no intimacy in worship. Is that where you are? Secondly, we've gotten comfortable with our sin so that we feel like our sin is actually part of who we are. Of course we're going to walk in here and just start worshiping. Of course we're going to walk in here and start singing. Of course we're going to do that. 
And we have, we have this all over us. And we're just like, no, that's who I am. And we're used to our sin so much so that our sin has been brought in and placed in the place of intimacy instead of our Lord. And God is asking us to say, hey, listen, confess it to me. Don't get used to it. Confess it. Because I want you to have real intimacy in worship. I don't want you just to sing about me. I just want you to be like, hey, I'm doing my thing here, God. And thirdly, we treat grace like it's deserved. That's me, y'all. If I'm going to confess one of these and be honest with you, that's me. The reason why I don't have intimacy and worship with the Lord sometimes is because I walk in here and I'm like, God, you're a God of grace, and I'm awesome. You should forgive me. Thanks. Good stuff. And we treat grace like it's this commodity that didn't cost anything. And yet, if we understood and we were aware of our sinfulness, aware of the depths of our sinfulness, aware of the heights of God's holiness, and what it took to make us pure and clean and holy, we wouldn't have this flippant attitude about grace or our sin. I don't have some magic bullet. All I can say is this, this is conquered through prayer. This is why David says in Psalm 139, search my heart, know my thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me. God, I might be wearing this sin like it belongs to me. I might be treating your grace or forgiveness like it's owed to me. I might have just gotten used to there being no intimacy. Search my heart, Lord God. See it, point it out to me. And I can promise you, these are the things that God loves to answer. Parents, you know this. If your kid is walking out on a date and it's their first date and they have just gotten over that sinus thing and they have a stalactite this far hanging out of their nose. And they come to you and they say, is there something right here? And this, not here or here, but here. And you, and you don't go, gosh, what's wrong with you? You go, yeah, sweetheart, let's go get a tissue. Take care of it. And that's, that's, that's why Jesus says again, if... If you all sinful parents know how to take care of your kids, give good gifts, how much more so than your Father in heaven? And so we confess these things in prayer and we say, look, God, I might not even be aware of these things. Show me. I want to have intimacy with you in worship. And the best times to do that is Sunday morning before you come into here. The kind of prep that we do to go to the prom versus the prep that we do to go to church on Sunday morning is vastly different. We can have the same preparation with prayer. And secondly, the greatest wisdom for a believer, the greatest wisdom for a believer is to learn from the pain of crisis so that you won't need another crisis again to remind you. You're like, huh? The greatest wisdom learned by a believer is to learn from the pain of a crisis so that you don't need another crisis to remind you. But that's how we are. You touch the stove and it was hot and a little while later you're like, I could do it again. And you forget. But that's really actually the, the laughable part of it. The true part of it is how often do we do the same thing and get ourselves in the same sinful position even though we know the cost of our sin and the goodness of God? One of the things that I love about today, and I wanted you all to see Andrew, is I love prison ministry. And prison ministry and crisis ministry go hand in hand. Because prison ministry and crisis ministry do two things. One, they show, prison ministry reveals the folly of misplaced priorities. Everyone in prison regrets what they've done and says, my priorities were so out of whack 
Well, how did they know that their priorities were out of whack? They got caught, and now they're dealing with the consequences. The other thing about it is, 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 is they go, you know what? I not only have misplaced priorities, I had misplaced desires. I used to think that this was so important. I used to want this so bad. I used to want that so bad. And then I got it. Or I got the consequences of what desiring the wrong thing happens. And all of a sudden, here I am, and the desires that I have were shown to be wrong. The priorities that I had were shown to be misplaced. And now I have nowhere else to go. And the only one that is here for me, even in my misplaced priorities and my misplaced desires, is Christ. Unfortunately, the whole deck had to be cleared for that realization to take place. But that's why I love prison ministry. There are people that are going, I get it. In my folly, I pursued this and this and this to my detriment. In my sinfulness, I pursued this desire and this desire and this desire, and look here and what it got me. And the rest of us are in the middle of pursuing misplaced priorities and wrong desires, teetering on the edge of a crisis that will be caused by that. And so when we can look at these people then we say, behind bars, they're blessed. And I would say, behind bars, they're blessed. Because now they're not being fooled by this misplaced desire. Now they're not being fooled by this misplaced priority anymore. And so when we look at verses 1 through 3, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist is saying, listen, look how bad it is to be in sin and rebellion. Look how bad it is. Verses 4 through 5, verse 4 through 5, but I didn't forget, God. I didn't forget how you dealt with me. I learned, and that's why I love this part where, it's, where it's, he says, listen, I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I have put my hope in him, but preceded by that is you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. And he says, I learned. I didn't forget how you dealt with me. I learned, and then verse 6 through 8, now I realize, now I realize how wonderful and worthy and how awesome the Lord is. The greatest wisdom for a believer is to learn from the pain of a crisis so that they won't need another crisis to remind them again. Now, Tim McGraw, he was remembering how painful. I worked so hard for that first kiss. Probably had to buy her an extra snow cone. But what he's saying is, I remember the price. I remember what it cost me. I remember the striving. If you've ever been in a restaurant and they have a dollar bill framed somewhere up on the side of the wall, what is that typically? It's the what? First dollar that they ever owned. Why? It's to remind them of the blood, sweat, and tears that went into it. How many men, how many people in this room still have their first car that they ever bought themselves? Raise your hand. Anybody? You, only one sentimental wise person in this room. I'm just kidding. Now, but you keep it because you go, man, I tell you the blood, sweat, and tears that took for me to get this, and I'm holding on to it. How about this one? How many of you have had the stomach bug and were laid out for days? And then you had a drink of orange juice about five days later. It tasted like the angel Gabriel squeezed the orange himself, did it not? How about this? How many of you have ever had to dive down really far to get something from the bottom of the lake? Or had to go rescue someone or needed rescuing when you were under the waves? And if you've been underwater for a long time, you feel that burning and that pressure. And you're kind of like, am I going to get to breathe? Am I going to get to breathe? And when you pop through the top, and you take that first breath, it's like you're being born again. You go, (gasps) and you remember that first breath because it was what? The life-giving breath. And yet right now, every single one of us is, but that person that has known that will never again take the breath for, for granted. 
But you know what? What this psalm is doing and the psalm is repeating is saying, listen, on the way to worship, I'm going to remember and I'm going to repeat to myself, when I was in the depths of my depths, I called out to God. He was faithful to me. He heard me. He answered my prayer. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in unfailing love. And I'm going to put all my hope and count completely on him. And I remember that on my way to worship because I don't want to have to have another crisis to remember it again. Wisdom is to desire what you already have. To desire what you already have. So as you come to worship and as you think about this psalm going up to worship, realize if you are a believer, you have Christ. And just like we sang in the song, yet not I, but Christ in me. You have Christ. Are you cherishing him actively? Are you actively cherishing him? Are you actively appreciate him? Are you actively loving him? Or is there no passion and no intimacy there? Because you've just gotten used to it. The reason we continue to have the Lord's Supper here 2,000 years later is because Jesus told us to. But because it's a visual, it engages all our senses. We hear the words we see the table. We can smell it. We can taste it. And we come and we go, God, it's not just that you're good. It's not just that you're good and we say that you're good. This is literally the evidence that you are good. And so on the night that Christ was betrayed, he took his disciples to the upper room. And I love that in the text it says, to show them the extent of his love. And we think sometimes that this is the extent of Christ's love. Yeah, the cross. Yeah, the cross. Yeah, yeah. The extent that the king of all eternity was crucified in our place. For his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, look, this bread represents my body that will be broken for you, the bread of the new covenant. Take and eat and remember me. In the same way he took the cup, he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. Every time you get together, drink it and remember me. And as they would have seen the body of Christ broken and the blood of Christ pouring down in their place, they wouldn't wonder about the extent of his love. And so in the same way we as his disciples come to him, knowing the extent of his love is greater than we can ever imagine. And the extent of his mercy is deeper and greater than all of the sum of our sin. I'll ask our communion servers to come down. I will pray and then you will be directed by our directors to come down and receive the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the depths of your love and the heights of your love are greater than we can imagine. And Lord, sometimes we forget that the depths of our sin necessitated your son on the cross. So Jesus, remind us again of your goodness. Remind us again of your faithfulness. Lord God, if we need to be held by you, hold us, that we would feel your presence know your goodness, know your mercy, and that we would cherish it always and forever. It's in your awesome name we pray. Amen.